WTF is going on with the UK economy. Last week, the UK had its own Black Wednesday deja vu moment, and almost everyone ignored it as the UK economy descended into absolute chaos. Despite having a degree in economics and nearly eight years in financial services in my early 20s, it's not easy to unpack exactly what is going on in the UK economy, why it's unfolding the way that it is, and who is really benefiting it all. But I'm going to give it my best shot in tonight's episode to make sense of the U-turns, the market manipulation, the government's actions, mishaps, missteps, and intentions, so that each of us can gain a better understanding of how to navigate some of this chaos. So this morning, we saw that there was a U-turn on a particular part of the mini budget, which I'll explain in a minute. But before we get to that, it's clear that the UK economy was all over the place last week. The pound tumbled in value on Monday. It bounced back a little bit on Tuesday, only for the Bank of England to make a dramatic intervention on Wednesday. So now the Chancellor, the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, has U-turned on his seemingly controversial tax cuts on the rich with the scrapping of the 45p rate of tax. All of these flurry events can be quite hard to follow, which is why in this episode I'm going to try and bring it all together so we can see a timeline of what's going on and try and get a bit of context. But just to give a bit of a setup to this conversation, it's quite clear that it was a major uproar around the 45p tax uh, reduction. And I'll explore that in more depth in a moment. But there was a lot of conversation around how this tax cut would be funded and concerns that it would be funded by government borrowing. And of course, that is one of the primary concerns that's been raised. But I just want to just draw your attention to this chart that we'll come back to later on in this episode. Now, removing the 45p tax rate would have cost the UK around about $2 billion. And that's no small amount of money. But if you look on the left-hand side of this image, the Total COVID expenditure on tackling the virus went to 376 billion, a sizable amount more money that has been borrowed and spent by the government, our taxpayer money, on a range of uh, measures that are highly questionable, including a lot of cr uh, crony deals that went through. So I just want you to bear that in mind as we go through tonight's conversation. I'm not diminishing the fact that. Uh, a tax rates reduction such as this does need to be funded in some way. But I also want to plant a question in your minds before we even begin about what is the context to this? Because in like most major stories right now in the mainstream media, we seem to lack context. We seem to lack the bigger picture. We seem to lack a truer understanding of what's really going on. So we'll come back to this chart as we go through. Um, now, in a nutshell, Everything kicked off last week when Chancellor, the new Chancellor unveiled his deeply divisive tax cuts within the mini budget announcement. And again, before I go into this, I don't wear a particular shirt when it comes to analysing what's going on politically or economically. I am truly, for all sense and purposes, politically homeless. I don't mind sympathising with things on the left or the right, the reds or the blues, if it makes sense at the time. So I'm not coming at this... I'll be, you know, by, by taking a, a different approach to this conversation, I'll probably sl be slandered as a far-right <laughs> fascist like the recent uh, uh, Italian uh, new prime minister. All of these things are just a matter of course these days. But I just wanted to put my flag out that I don't have a flag. Uh, I just want to look at the objective facts and try to get to the reality of what's really going on so we can really make sense of the world. So let's put that little disclaimer there for you to chew on. Uh, so let's go through what the mini budget uh, covered last week, if you're not already up with last week's news. Firstly, the income tax, cutting the basic rate of income tax from 20% to 19% from April 2023. It's a 1% reduction. And then the 45% um, higher rate of income tax to be abolished for England, Wales and Northern Ireland taxpayers to have, or this was what was proposed, to have a single one single higher rate of tax of 40% from April next year. This is one of the single components that caused the biggest stir, which, again, we're going to come back to. Now, um, as it's been pointed out over the last 24 hours, there is a whole 
package of measures that were announced in the mini budget. And I'm not going to go through and assess each on its individual merits. But I think it's important that we recognize that there are a whole series of measures in there that, that should be <laughs> considered in the complexity. But this narrow focus on one particular thing seems to have distorted the overall picture. So there was meant to be a rise in the national insurance from the 6th of November. That's been reversed. So that rise in national insurance is now being uh, cut so that Again, that's more money in our pockets coming uh, forth from November, or, or at least it's, it's not a further deduction, if you will. Um, there was other announcements around the health and social care levy, which was due to be paid uh, for the NHS uh, developments. That's not going to be introduced. It's not yet clear what the plans are for our NHS uh, going forward. That's another subject for another time. Uh, corporation tax, the UK-wide rise in corporation tax was due to increase from 19% to 25% in April 2023. That's been scrapped. Um, again, we've talked about the, the undue influence of corporations over the last, well, two years and the influence these mega corporations have upon our lives. And this is going to be one of the most contentious elements you would have thought Um but at this point in the kind of economic cycle, as we go through this, we know that Britain is not in a decent place economically. So the last thing you really want is your major employers upping sticks and moving outside of the British uh, territory in order to conduct their business because that has a massive knock-on effect. So there's some there's a nuanced discussion around corporation tax. Again, we can have here on the podcast another time. Um, but that's obviously a move in this case intended to stimulate growth. Um, but we'll come back to that. Uh, you could also spin that as saying it's it's protecting the rich. And, you know, I would also <laughs> agree with that sentiment. So it's tricky. Benefits, uh, the rules around universal credit are tightened, reducing benefits if people don't fulfill job search commitments. I'm sure we've got a diverse political set of views amongst our audience. There's probably a whole different views on the, how the benefits are used or, or not used and how they should be used and how they should not be used. Uh, it means that more people are going to be asked to take additional steps to find work or face having their benefits cut. Um, we, again, we could talk about that single point at depth. We could do that another time, but we're going to continue. Working in investment, um, the idea that new startups are able to raise money more easily under a new scheme, giving uh, tax relief to investors, uh, employees of major companies that offer share schemes now able to invest more in their own employee share schemes, which gives people access to a share in the, the success of uh, the companies they work for, uh, has been announced. Stamp duty has been cut. No stamp duty on the first 250K for first-time buyers, uh, rising to 425K already in, in effect. Uh, freeze on energy bills. Again, there's been some all kinds of misinformation from the government on this one. Um, but the freeze in energy bills is supposedly likely to reduce inflation uh, by up to five percentage points. We'll talk more about energy in a minute because all of this chaos, if we really want to hone down on what the main problem is right now, could be linked to the energy uh, situation. But we'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, bankers bonuses. I don't understand what what they're doing here, but rules at which limits bankers bonuses have been scrapped. And that's always going to go down with a lead balloon. We're facing an economic recession. Everyone pretty much <laughs> sees the problem that the bankers in the first instance over a decade ago when we had the last major recession. So that is already going to be a political clangor. Uh, but it's not really been spoken about in the context of, uh, of, of the wider um, uh uproar which we'll talk more about in a moment uh shopping planned increases the planned increases on beer cider wine etc spirits are all cancelled so we can continue to go down the boozer at a reasonable price that is if the electric and gas of running those establishments isn't through the windows um infrastructure and investment zones the government's going to be setting up different investment zones around different localities to stick stimulate uh economic growth and local investment and when it comes to unions, a politically divisive one here again, uh, new rules making it more difficult to strike. But again, we're already seeing the build up, you know, it's a, perhaps a preventary, a precautionary measure given that there's a build up of energy right now. It's like a pressure cooker in the United Kingdom. People are very dissatisfied and un, un, understandably want to vent. And therefore, there's already a whole uh, series of strikes planned which will disrupt uh, the effect of uh, British. Um, life. 
and again, that's a whole subject in itself around protesting strikes and the rationale for that. And it's something we, we can explore in more detail another time. But I just wanted to give you a summary of what was included in the budget if you didn't have that already. So there's obviously been a huge uproar around the budget in itself. Um, the reaction to the removal of the 45p tax rate has been the kind of single point of um, uh, 45% tax rate is, is the kind of primary um piece which has caused much uh, much of the uproar um which is going to be funded by increasing the government debt now this really created a storm it sparked a fall in the value of the pound a surge in the cost of government borrowing last week the pound fell to record levels against the us dollar on monday resulted in the intervention of the bank of england on wednesday to control the turmoil um uh, which we'll talk about in a moment so the, this this single issue within the budget uh, is clearly highly contentious. This is the thing that's caused the uproar. And we're going to unpack this throughout today's episode because I think it's really important we get to grips of what, why this has caused such such, um, such an outrage and the effect that we've seen in the market because we have to understand what's driving this in order to get to the bottoms of what, what really needs to be done to alter, alter the trajectory we're on and actually understand what we can do as individuals to protect our own sovereignty in times like these. So the Bank of England announced on Wednesday effectively that it's going to be buying government bonds, otherwise known as gilts, on a temporary basis to bring order back into the market. Now, specifically, it would print £65 billion to buy the government bonds between now and October the 14th to stabilise the market. What these represent are essentially a IOU with an interest rate, a promise to pay someone back in the future. So effectively, the government that rather the bank is buying unlimited amounts of long-term debt from the government because no one else in the market wants to buy from the UK right now. This turmoil that's created in the marketplace has made uh, UK to be deemed a risky place to do business. So it's not a good sign for our economy. Now, let's be clear. This is a form of increasing the money supply. It's a form of quantitative easing where uh, the, the Bank of England is intervening by increasing the money supply. So with more money circulating uh, as a result of this intervention, the cost of money is reduced because it's not as hard to come by, thereby theoretically bringing inflation back down. Now, that might not sound um, that might sound counterintuitive because quantitative easing itself can cause inflation. Increasing the money supply over time has been seen to show uh, it can increase the inflation, but it's not always the case. But in these instances, it's, it's, it's designed to bring the cost of government borrowing down. So, you know, the interest rates on UK bonds were, were, were just spiraling in a way that was deemed to be dangerous for the UK economy. So this intervention has, 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 has been put in place to stabilise or seemingly attempt to stabilise the economy. And this shows just how crazy the financial system is and how essentially it's always rigged to benefit the house as more and more money is printed over time. Now, this is an even bigger topic. You know, we could unpick the individual parts of the budget <laughs> in an entire episode, but the big conversation about the craziness of money creation and the financial system, most people have no idea. I mean, when I was at university learning about the mon monetary system and how money is created, it just blew my mind. And we, we've got an interview with economist Richard Werner coming up, which we recorded at the Better Way conference recently, uh, which we'll be putting out soon, where he talks more about these uh, uh, systemic issues when it comes to the financial system. But again, this is an even bigger topic for another time. We will come and cover this. Now, despite the intervention from the Bank of England, it's still expected to increase the interest rates in order to bring inflation down to its 2% target. Now, we're way above that right now, cl closing in on double digits if we haven't already hit it. And the bank has already said that it will not hesitate to increase interest rates to protect the pound the pound of which is taking a beating right now. Now, it's almost as though everyone has forgotten that inflation itself, in this instance, is almost solely being created by the market speculation that drove the energy prices through the roof. Now, we could do it again. I've done a number of episodes on the cost of living crisis and the energy crisis in particular, or the perceived energy crisis. But remember, when you actually look at the building blocks of inflation, the components that are driving inflation in the United Kingdom, it is largely gas, electric and fuel. You know, it's, it's, it's these prices that have risen dramatically due to supposedly the situation in Russia. Now, 
the reality is if you actually take stock of the, the overall energy supply across Europe, across Britain, it's very difficult to actually find what the realities are, whether we have sufficient supply with or without Russia's uh, gas and the pipeline. Um, so what's happening here is financial speculation around the scarcity in the market, which is where fear enters a market, massive uncertainty plays out, there's huge opportunity, and market speculation will drive, uh, drive the prices. And we've seen this at scale. And what a surprise, many of those market speculators happen to work for the major energy producers themselves. So when we see these record profits coming from the Shells, the Exxons, etc., they are coming from the financial arm of these uh, big businesses. You know, they're holding their hands up saying we're tied to the wholesale rates. Well, you may be. But at the same time, you are speculating on the market. You're driving up the prices, enabling energy companies to generate record profits, whilst the rest of the economy now plunged into turmoil, whilst most of us will now feel that in our pockets. And we're already feeling it through the inflation, the increase in cost of uh, gas and electric, no matter even if you put a cap on there, you know, it's a little illusion compared to what we were paying 12 months ago. It's uh, We're still paying significantly more than we were a year, two years ago, plus the cost of fuel and all, 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 all of the prices that we pay are going to rise because businesses require fuel, gas, electric to run their business, to store goods, to, 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 to transport goods, to run premises, offices, outlets, it's just it has a huge knock on effect on overall prices and therefore overall inflation. So if we really wanted to curb inflation, we should kill the monster while it's a baby in this in the case of these particular behaviors of the energy companies. So we're now experiencing this spiraling problem, <clears throat> excuse me, which can be stemmed back to, at least in part, to this energy crisis or this perceived energy crisis where no one has any transparency on the actual world of energy and how much stock there is across uh, across Europe in order to actually determine what would be a, a, an appropriate rate to pay for gas and electric so this is a this is just a fallacy it's a farce the whole situation that we find ourselves in right now could be avoidable I mentioned at the beginning that I spent seven nearly eight years in financial services I worked in retail and commercial banking I make no secret of that. I left on my uh, just uh, just before my 30th birthday because I couldn't face another year, another decade in, in the career path that I was on. And what I witnessed during my time, during the first banking crisis, I witnessed how that first banking crisis was entirely avoidable. It was clearly enabled to happen to benefit certain people, certain institutions, certain individuals. It was clearly an avoidable problem. I was there scratching my head thinking, how is this happening? It's, there's a clearly there's clearly a set of patterns that gave us a warning that this was coming. Why was nothing done about it? The same is happening again. I actually left my corporate career primarily a because I was dissatisfied. Yes, but I just could. I, I saw in particular when I was working with small businesses, when I was working in commercial banking, that there were things I could have done to help those businesses that end up struggling. But whilst I was still working for the organisation, I couldn't give any advice. I couldn't share any information. And as a result, I said, enough's enough. I want to get out and do my thing to go and try and help people. And that's what I've done for the last 10 years prior to doing all this crazy stuff with the pandemic and this new political cultural commentary that I find myself in right now. But here we are again, history repeating itself. What a surprise. An entirely manufactured situation. And in fact, side note, if we look at any of the crises we're witnessing right now, quote unquote crisis, by the way, pandemic, climate, cost of living, energy, they're all manufactured, human manufactured crises. However you dress it up, it's a human problem uh, uh, that, that, that does have human solutions. But unfortunately, the people with the controls to these problems seem to be the ones that also benefit at scale from the problems. What a surprise. Disaster capitalism at its best. Um, anyway, we'll continue. Side note over. Forecasters think that interest rates could climb beyond 5% by next spring. I wouldn't be surprised at all. We've seen it before. I saw it during my previous career. Uh, we're currently at 2.25%, predicting 5 6% by next spring, which will lead to an absolute mortgage refinancing disaster when fixed rates expire. I've been talking to people this week, who's, including fan, friends and family members, whose fixed rates are expiring now. It's putting a massive amount of pressure on their monthly outgoings, going up 400, 500, 1,000 pounds a month, depending on their current uh, mortgages, Meaning that for some, it's going to be simply unaffordable when the repayments go through the roof. 
you know, there's going to be a substantial share of households, as we saw previously in the previous financial crisis, that can't pay their bills. They can't pay their mortgage payments or can't put food on the table once they've paid for their mortgage. This is a very stark reality that we're facing. Now, similarly, without the Bank of England intervention, mass insolvencies of the pension funds with about $3 trillion equivalent of assets uh, could have... Uh, become insolvent. Uh, we could have seen huge, huge amounts of pension funds collapsing, which would have commenced as early as last week. Now, it's obvious that one of the major financial hubs of the world, the city of London, would face financial panic. What a surprise, as we saw previously, it would spread to the rest of the world almost like uh, in an instant, like, like wildfire. So it does seem amongst all of the chaos last week, that the system was somehow wrestled from the brink of collapse, but it's still teetering. Uh, and today's announcements, we've seen some, you know, because of the U-turn, we've seen the, the pound rally slightly. But let's not forget that the pound has been in descent for an awful long time. This is not, this is, you know, th th there are people on Twitter who would like to lead you to believe that it's, you know, it's classic partisan politics. The people on the left are saying, oh, the conservatives have caused this. Well, they may have triggered it in some way, yes, but let's look at the, <laughs> the history. Let's look at the history. It's not a single event. And again, let's not get into the politics of it. Let's try and leave our flags, our team colours off the bench whilst we actually look at this so we can get to what's real. So we narrowly avoid, uh, avoided a collapse. Uh, was it a temporary fix? Where is the economy right now in the UK? What the heck is going on? Now, it's very clear, if it isn't clear by now, that an outright financial collapse threatens all of the Western economy because if pension funds or... Uh, which which are, are, are pretty dull investments, uh, according to most um, uh, fund managers, because of their kind of risk-averse investing profile. Well, if they become insolvent, this can happen to any financial institution. And there's already, you know, rumblings right now of uh, what, what's next in line. We've seen some major warning signs at the big banks like Credit Suisse. This is this is scary stuff, and this is serious stuff, and this this could this could create a kind of recession that you know would outstrip what we witnessed in 20, uh, 2008, 2009. This is serious stuff. Now, back to the story. Last week, Cortang and Trust were further left red faced after addressing down from the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. I got a lot to say about them <laughs> another time. Um, where Downing Street was accused of undermining the Bank of England's uh, attempts to control inflation through tax cuts, um, which in their view would in inevitably lead to increased inequality. Now, at this moment in time, inequality is a real issue, of course, and we're seeing that gap increasing and increasing and increasing. And it's no surprise that the pandemic has increased that, that gap. This cost of living crisis is increasing that gap, yet no one is talking about the ones who really pull the strings, the ones that are causing this uh, this, this real uh, gap, this real divide, the mega corporations, the global elite. It's quite clear that there's a global uh, uh, narrative. There's a global stream of activity that's leading, leading to this uh, widening inequality, which bizarrely, I just bizarrely, I mean, to me, it's just the most transparent thing. But the organizations like the World Economic Forum, we talk about reducing inequalities. Are the organizations creating inequalities? Like just, it doesn't take a genius to sit down and go, hmm, what could be happening here? Um, but this criticism from the IMF, again, had a further impact on the pound. So it, it seems if you're at the IMF and your responsibility is to stabilize market conditions. Making a statement like that made things worse. Surely you could see that happening. Surely that was a predictable event, which again leads me to, to ask lots of questions around what all the fuss is really all about. Because again, it's about this inequality. It's about the taxation on the risk, the rich. You know, it's it, it's about the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, or the, the idea of that based upon this one policy. But no one's really asking, well, what is the history of this type of policy and what does it mean in terms of GDP? What does it mean in terms of overall taxation, the proportion of uh, taxes paid by uh, by the rich? And we'll talk more about that in a minute because America's gone through various cycles on this and it's hotly debated. And there's, you can cherry pick evidence to, to, to make your own point, as always, with anything. But there has to be an open and honest conversation around the, these policies that that, that happen in an adult way that doesn't result in a booming, crazy market that explodes 
and causes financial collapse for everyone. Um, so to me, as I'll reiterate in a moment, I'm not necessarily convinced that any of this is about economics. I'm more convinced that this is about politics and it's about the interests of the, the controlling interests of those who are pulling the strings in the global markets. But we'll come back to that in a minute. So credit rating agency Moody claimed that it, this uh, this fall in the pound could permanently, this, this set of activities could permanently weaken the UK's debt affordability. The US also warned that it was monitoring the UK market very closely. That's very kind of you, good friends. Uh, mortgage products were taken off the market at a crazy level. The pension funds, which had already lent money to the government, were asking for them to be refunded. This was just chaos unfolding right beneath our eyes. Uh, so essentially what's happened is the UK market has taken a blow, a significant blow to its reputation. It's hanging on by a thread, but it has sidestepped a financial crisis. Now, there are fears that the pound could reach parity with the US dollar. What that means is one for one. One dollar for a pound. It's never happened before. Now, this is basically a threat that's been loomed over the United Kingdom and Downing Street and the government, saying that unless the UK government alters many uh, parts of its mini budget, then this, this price parity would be reached. So, again, leading back to our previous speculation around the IMF, why is the IMF intervening in this such a way? Why is there such hysteria around this one particular piece? And again, we'll unpack that in a minute. And now there's almost this threat, unless the mini budget is changed, then the markets will continue to close in on the UK economy, almost putting pressure on it uh, to, to, to the point where it goes to point of failure. Now, why would the market speculators, why would the global financiers want to press the United Kingdom in such a way? Why would you be taking such a politically motivated step? And has that ever happened before? Hmm. Black Wednesday, deja vu. We'll come to that. Uh, so bear with me a moment as we continue the story. So the question we could leave ourselves with here, which is a controversial one, given everything that's just happened and everything I've just said, is it possible? Is it possible? As many as those, some of you who play for the other team have agreed to leave our uh, party, political party shirts on the sidelines of this broadcast. But is it possible that Truss and Kwarteng were right and that we do need to dig our heels in and go for growth? If Britain's economy has been on the downward spiral for a long period of time and the, the, the value of the pound has been shrinking over years, is it possible then we actually need to get to roll up our sleeves and, and, and get the country going again, get it into growth, getting it firing on all cylinders, becoming internationally competitive? Is, is that not a possible reality that the, the current government is actually attempting boldly to do? I don't know. This isn't a message of endorsement, by the way, to either Truss or Kwarteng or the Conservatives. I've already made my position clear. I've made my statement. But what I do look at, if Britain is falling, then we darn well need to do something about it. Now, side note, how do we get there? How does Britain grow? Do I trust in politicians? Do I trust in the government to actually take us on a path that's going to lead anywhere useful? No. I've learned that over <laughs> my entire adult life. But there are things that each of us can do to contribute to growth. And I would like to, to share that in a, in a future episode about what, what citizens themselves and businesses can do to actually lead to growth and prosperity in times like these, because ultimately this is no, uh, this is no uh, new territory. You know, this is this, this, this type of environment has, we've been through it before, maybe not in our lifetimes, but there is a roadmap to, to, to go through these things and how we can actually survive, not just survive, but thrive. Uh, so that's a conversation for another time again. Um, now, it's undoubtable that we've been through many years of self-harm inflicted by the government, the COVID case being one of them, as we've just seen, 376 billion spent, government money, tax, taxpayers' money. Um, but we're here now to just address the point that this may not be about the economics, it could be about the politics. And interestingly, according to a Eurasia set of analysis in the Eurozone, Truss and Quarteng are now facing severe economic crisis as the world's financial markets Wait for them to make policy changes that they and the Conservative Party will find unpalatable. Now, wouldn't it be devastating to find out that the entire chaos of our market right now is being politically motivated at a larger scale, a grand scale, by those who are in power with significant money and resources and influence to play out their political uh, uh, fault lines in the public domain at the expense of the citizens. Now, I want to unpack this sensitively because it's a tricky 
subject. But as I've said, to me, it's beginning to strike me as not being about the economics, but more about the politics. Now, let's first take stock. Whether you agree with the politics, the policies of trust and co or not, let's be clear about this. None of these policies were any way a surprise, given that they reflect entirely what the Conservative Party and Trust made clear during the entirety of the political hustings leading up to the leadership election campaign. None of this is a secret. She's been openly stating that's what she's just done is what she's going to do. Ultimately, what Trust wants to do, or at least says they want to do, is to boost growth and usher in a new era for Great Britain, targeting 2.5% annual growth rate over a three-pronged approach of reforming the supply side of the economy, taking a responsible approach to public finance and cutting taxes. This was abundantly clear during the whole lead-up to her election. I use the term election loosely. All of this, uh, however, being funded by huge levels of public borrowing in the hope that it would boost consumer spending, stimulate enterprise, and stave off a recession. It's a bold approach, for sure. Some would say it's a gamble, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, now, the fact that the budget itself, or the mini-budget, did not come with an independent assessment of the UK's economy from the Office of Budget Responsibility, as regular budgets normally do, is perhaps a massive schoolboy error on part of the new chancellor. Um, and the other fact, the other minor detail, that the mini-budget itself represents the biggest package of tax cuts in half a century, involving around 45 billion of reductions of people and businesses by 2027, 50% more than anticipated. So even though it was clear in the kind of lead up to this, the numbers are more stark. But what's shocking to myself uh, is, is the reaction the reaction to these cuts, because most people, over 30 million people, in some way would benefit from these tax cuts, meaning they would have more in their pocket. The problem becomes the idea that it's the rich who are benefiting the most. And this is where the government did not read the room. Now, it's very clear that where we are on the kind of economic cycle, Ray Dalio has done an amazing video on this, talking about the changing world order, where he explains the economic cycles. To me, it's clear that Britain United Kingdom is in a it's in a deep it's in a it's it's in it's in the kind of regression stage it's in it's in it's in a place sorry a, a kind of uh, it, it's 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 in a place where it's gone through its growth and now it's 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 in a tail off and during these times when when the country or an economy is in growth even if there is inequalities within the economy provided most people's standards of living are improving and not worsening the, the conflict between classes, the economic bridge, is, is usually kept reasonably in check. However, when economies begin to decline and standards of living begin to fall, which we've seen at scale, you know, no one bats an eyelid when people talk about the top 1%. But when you say the bottom 60%, people get confused. Now, when you say the top 1%, presumably we're talking about the bottom 99%. But when we look at the bottom 60% of the British uh, public, the bottom 60% sounds crazy, but the reality is the, uh, the, the middle class are now considered part of the precariat, the precariat being those who are economically or socially precarious, meaning that we've got a huge amount of people in the United Kingdom who are suffering a reduction in standard of living. The, the cost of living have gone up so much over time, the, 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 the progress of the economy has dwindled so much, that the, 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 the actual real uh, disposable income amongst a large group of people ha has suffered. So it's it shows that we're in this decline stage. And when that happens, where there is a decline in the standard of living that affects a, a disproportionate number of people, that's where when any policy or any idea that could widen that gap comes to, to, comes to the forefront, that's where you start to get real conflict. It's hidden amongst the good times, because most people are enjoying the good times. But now when the pressure is on, that is where conflict starts to arise. And it's no surprise. That's why we're seeing not only the announcement causing market chaos, but it sparked huge discontent and protests from workers. We've seen strikes in the rail and the postal sectors, um, uh, demanding rises in their salaries, rightly so, from the kind of uh, the challenges to the cost of living. But, but many sectors are now standing up. You know, there's protest groups like enough is enough and don't pay, you know, driving this kind of age of discontent. And we're going to see this increasing through the winter. It's going to be a winter of discontent. And 
a lot of this is really, if you strip it back, it's not just about the cost of living. It's about the fact that we've seen entire segments of our society left behind for far too long. And there's been not inadequate support. Now, don't get me wrong. There's things that we can all do to increase our standard of living. We live in a developed country. We don't live in a developing world where, you know, you know people are living on less than a pound a day. You know, don't take away from the fact that, you know, people are born into precarious environments in this country as well. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. But we live in a we, we are we are well off by comparison. Um, but nonetheless, the situation economically we find ourselves in means that we are going to see more and more discontent. We're going to go and see more and more conflict. So the government did not read the room. If it did read the room, then it was it was it was it was missing a trick in its communication. Because, of course, if you're going to alter the tax rate of the uh, uh, the highest level affecting the rich, it's going to go down like a lead balloon. However, However, here's where it gets important. We need to get beyond the political ideologies that underpin these things. Because again, when we start to look at what is the implication of a reduced tax, what does it mean? The idea, the idea that it's going to cost us $2 billion to fund, well, that's a lot of money to find. But again, taking us back to our chart, removing the tax rate would cost us $2 billion. Total expenditure on COVID 376 billion. This diagram is to scale. Look at the amount spent in the last two years by the government of taxpayers' money compared to what that change in tax rate would cost the economy. So it's not about the policy. It's about what the policy represents. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. But let's just talk a bit more about the context because here's some deep here's some deeper reflections. So trying to stop COVID costs the government and asked the taxpayers £376 billion. Supporting the energy bills is going to cost £150 billion. Increasing the NHS core funding is going to cost £25 billion. And, you know, by the way, supporting the energy bills, increasing the funding of the NHS, we had to do this. But but the way that the energy bills are being tackled, again, see the previous point. What is, what's the real issue and why isn't the real issue being targeted? Reversing the, uh, the national insurance hike, that's 12 billion per annum. Cutting the basic rate of income tax, that's 5 billion. We've already spent nearly 3 billion on Ukraine, and that's going to increase into next year. So removing the 45% top rate of income tax is 2 billion. Comparatively, it doesn't seem like a lot. Still a lot of money, absolutely, but it's not about the money. It's not about how much it's costing us. That's not what it's about. It's about the perception of what it represents. It's about the haves and the have-nots. It's about the left and the right. And we, no matter how well we try to disguise political division, it is still very much there. You know, again, disclaimer, I'm not wearing a shirt here. I'm not wearing a flag. I don't belong to any political party. Uh, I, don't, I don't aspire to any political belief system. But we have to recognize what's going on here is that the 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 what the forty five percent tax rate represented was a, a increase in inequality? Now the other piece to look at is, you know, whether this type of policy actually can result in economic growth. If this policy uh, was intended to drive economic growth, what happens? And you know that the best case scenario to look at, you know, with the American in the American economy where they've done this multiple times with Andrew Mellon in the 20s, JF Kennedy in the 60s, Reagan in the 80s, Bush in the 2000s, where they lowered taxes for the highest uh, rate taxpayers. Uh, in some cases, it increased or established uh, a stability within the rate of growth in the economy. But what was really interesting, irrespective of its effects on the economy, what ended up happening is the rich actually paid more taxes in real terms and paid a higher proportion of taxes now, that might seem counterintuitive, but the data backs it up. Now, why does this play out? Well, when the tax rate is too high for the richest people in society, they have all kinds of instruments at their disposal, which enables them through investments and different financial instruments to avoid paying taxes, So, which is I do not fundamentally agree with. But when making tax rates more favorable, it can actually lead to higher tax revenues because uh, they no longer go through those avoidance schemes. They're actually more appealing to pay the tax. So even John Maynard Keynes uh, argues that reduction in taxes creates a better chance of balancing the budgets. So whilst it may seem counterintuitive and it will annoy the heck out of people who see this as a driver of inequality, and it may well be, but ultimately people are speaking as though the government are giving money to the rich. 
they're just keeping more of what they're already earning. Let's just remember that fact as well. And again, I'm not saying I agree with it or I don't agree with it, but I'm just saying let's look at the facts. Let's look at what happens when tax rates are reduced in these circumstances. It can lead, it can lead, doesn't always lead to, but it can lead to an increase in real the real amount of tax being paid, meaning the rich pay more, and not just pay more in real terms, in terms of pounds and pence, but a higher proportion of taxes, i.e. they pay more taxes overall than other uh, groups within society. And it seems like those who are challenging the idea of removing that tax rate are failing to overlook that argument. They're failing to look at that argument. And it's important that we start to look at the facts. And actually, if you trace back the idea of this trick, you know, people are citing it as a, as a, as a policy of trickle-down economics. Trickle-down economics is a non-existent economic theory that never has been tested. It's an economic, it's a, it's a political smear. If you look through its history, it's a classic part, it's another partisan distinction made between the kind of growing fractions of the kind of progressive side of politics and the uh, more traditional conservative. It's, it's a product of that widening political gap. It's not a real economic theory, but it's, it's been used in that way ever since. Now, you can dispute me on all of these things and feel free to do so. What I'm pointing out here is this entire chaos that we've just witnessed has come because of the perception of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And something that I quite clearly don't agree with. However, talk about Black Wednesday. Let's talk about Black Wednesday. Doesn't this ring deja vu for you? Does this not ring deja vu? Let's look more closely what happened in the markets last week. Black Wednesday, 16th of September, 1992, just 30 years ago. George Soros, of course, became a billionaire by shorting the pound. He became a billionaire 30 years ago by playing God with our economy and shorting the pound, causing an all manner of uh, chaos in the economy. And guess what? It would be very interesting to see Soros's trading patterns last week. It would be very interesting to see the hedge funds who are uh, who are more left leaning, those who are part of the kind of global system and the globalist approach to the more progressive, rather, you know, leaning funds. And again, I don't want to get political in terms of the, uh, us versus them and left versus right, or any of that kind of thing. But we've got to look at the politically motivated moves because to state that this entire this entire singular policy has resulted in this alter chaos, we have to look beneath the surface and ask these questions. Who's pulling the strings in the market that's leading to these moves? And why is it happening? How has it been happening just under the guise of this one particular tax rate, which ultimately leaves everyone, you know, the tax cuts, the 1% cut uh, for, for everyone, and then the, the high rate tax cut, it leaves everyone with more money in the pocket. Now, you know, the theory of trickle-down economics, which I've just de 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 debunked, states that more money will enter into the marketplace. That's just, it's just, it's just a, a false theory. Um, but the idea that this particular this particular policy intervention, this particular policy has led to this market chaos, it's very clear from what I've already shared that people upon high pulling the strings have decided that this policy is not acceptable and that it will be crushed, that it will be crushed. And what a surprise, the UK hedge funds, international hedge funds, we're at it again last week, trading like crazy. So those, you know, you can take the argument of the haves and the have-nots to the nth degree. And you could say that the political regime in power right now is, is serving the interests of the rich. And that's probably true. And that can all be addressed. And it needs to be addressed. But we also need to take responsibility for how we as citizens stand up for our own rights and stop turning to the government for, uh, you know, the bank of mum and dad. Because, you know, there's a whole story there where, you know, we need to have safeguards. Of course, we've all gone through challenges. People are going to go through challenges over the next five, 10 years, we need to make sure people are looked after. But at the same time, we've got to learn to take responsibility for our own future and our own outcomes. Personal responsibility has been, as a concept, has been politicized. The idea that one can better oneself and take responsibility for their own outcomes, it's not easy, but it's available to all of us with the right determination and focus. Determination and focus is perhaps something we all need right now in order to get out of this mess. Now, I can already see how everything I've just been said is, is going to be misconstrued. But my point is this. My point is this. If we're going to get into the haves and the have-nots, those that have at the top level, those that have enough money to manipulate the markets were the ones manipulating the markets last week, causing the chaos. So interesting, isn't it, that the energy crisis 
is down to market speculation with those who have the money to speculate. Isn't it interesting that the, the financial crisis that we witnessed last, last week with the fluctuation in the pound and the chaos is again down to financial speculation, regardless of what you think about this government, the policies, the budget. What do you think about people with such money and influence and control manipulating markets in a way that causes us all to suffer? The reality is there are people right now intervening in our lives at a scale that is far beyond politics. It is far beyond politics. You know, these hedge funds, these major global institutions are manipulating our lives and it's time that we take the power back. Now, even Quateng today said that most, much of the market turmoil was caused by interna international factors uh, and he's declined to apologize. He says that it's a humiliation and contrition and he's happy to own it. Uh, he, he refuses to concede that the ab abolition of the tax rate was a mistake, saying it's taking uh, attention away from these policies, uh, such as the limitation to the energy bills. What is, what is clear here is that this is a distraction. This is a distraction from the big machine that plays the game behind us. Don't you think this is a lot of fuss around a single tax rate? Yes, I get in times of economic decline, as in a period where inequality is at its greatest in perhaps history. Maybe not, I don't know. We'd have to look at that to confirm. But inequality is certainly on the rise. And I can see why people are angry. And I totally understand. But we, in my view, should be getting angry with those who control the strings, the puppet masters that play the game, that lead to all of these outcomes. The cost of living crisis, which could have been inevitably avoided. The banking crisis over a decade ago that could have been inevitably avoided. And all these major moves, Black Wednesday, Soros, 30 years ago, playing the market in a way, shorting the pound, becoming a billionaire at everyone else's expense. Don't you think it's time we start to address the true cause of these problems? Don't you think it's time we actually get beneath the veil of what's really happening to recognize the financial system itself is the problem and that the players that play the game that continually reap the rewards of the system that they created is the problem? We can battle it out across left and right. We can keep fighting the wars between red and blue. We can, we can, we can keep saying it's the haves and the have-nots, but we're not addressing the real problem. And that real problem is becoming more and more stark than ever before. To me, this is the time that we actually have to take stock of what's really happening and turn, turn the course of history to turn the page. Yes, we can protest government. Yes, we can challenge policy. It's right that we do that. It's right that we stand up for our rights. It's right that we now in, in this time in history, no one should be suffering from, you know, with the amount of money that we've printed in the world right now, it's crazy how much money's been printed. No one should be poor. No one should be in poverty. No one should suffer. We live in a world where the basic standard of living should be assured for everyone. But at the same time, we also have the opportunity to take it in our own financial destiny into our own hands. We have the opportunity to take financial sovereignty. We have the opportunity to change the way we look at the system. And for me, that right now is the biggest, most important pressing issue because every time something like this happens, we get caught up in the detail. We get caught up in the, the individual policies. We lose sight of the systemic issues and the, the way the game is played. It's absolute madness. We've got to change the way we look at the game in order for the game to change. And it's down to us to do it. There's not going to be an individual savior. There's not going to be an individual politician. There's not going to be a new prime minister or a president come into power that changes the game. It's going to be down to us. It comes down to focused effort and focused attention. It's our, our responsibility to create change in the market. It's our responsibility to change the game. It's our responsibility to change the way things work. That doesn't mean we don't lend a helping hand to those who need the helping hand. It doesn't mean we don't create safeguards. It doesn't mean we don't create systems that protect the most vulnerable. It doesn't mean that, you know, if we get knocked down, we don't have systems that enable us to fall, uh, to get back up again. It, my, my, myself, in my, when I first started my business 10 years ago, Went through three years, stress, struggle, sacrifice. It was painful. It was hard. I needed a hand up. I needed, I needed people to help me out. I needed my parents to, to step in and, and, and save the day. But it came to a point when I went to my parents for the third time and said, I need your help. They said, no, Dan. No, Dan, you're on your own. And that was one of the hardest days of my life. But it made me stand up and become an adult. It made me stand up and take responsibility for my own life. It became my own destiny. If I was going to take risks, I had to take the consequences. Now is the time where we all have to grow up and take maturity. We have to take the mature approach. It feels like society itself needs to mature. We need to grow up. We need to take responsibility of our realities. And we can. We can. It's hard. It's hard. It comes with stress. It comes with sacrifice. But we can, we can prosper. Each one of us can prosper. It just takes time, effort, and focus and learning how we can make the greatest difference. We need to change the game.
It's changing the game that changes the results. It's not just these. Yes, we continue to fight the fight. Of course, we have to resist, but we have to reimagine and rebuild. It's time for a different way of thinking. So talking about the financial system, I want to close on this. So tomorrow night, we're running a digital assets training course. Uh, it's about the future, the good, the bad, and the ugly of what decentralized finance looks like. We have a unique window in time right now where we are at a fork in the road, where either we're going to go down this horrible path of centralized digital bank currencies, which have all kinds of perils for our future and present a dystopian reality. That's a possibility. They don't necessarily, they won't necessarily go down that path, but we're already seeing indications of it in China and other parts of the world. But decentralized finance also offers us a different opportunity when it comes to financial sovereignty. And I know there's people who are cash purists who say we need to retain cash. I agree with you. We do. But ultimately, cash is in decline. And ultimately, as we've just talked about for the last 50 minutes, cash is a product of the monetary system that the government controls and its value can crash in an instant overnight when someone pulls the strings. Right now, there's a new set of digital asset classes that in this particular time and place offers the opportunity to take greater sovereignty about finance. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to protect cash. I agree. But we have to mitigate against the forthcoming financial reset and we have to get ourselves educated upon the world of digital finance and the world of digital assets in order to understand the good, the bad and the ugly. So if you'd like to join us tomorrow night, we have a course. We're doing a four hour session with a special guest trainer. We're turning it into a digital course. It's a live event tomorrow night for four hours. We're going to break it down into micro lessons, uh, but it's going to help you understand the changing world of finance. What we, the, best, the best way we can take sovereignty and agency and autonomy right now is to educate ourselves. The reality is the world, the technology is, is, is only going to keep, keep growing. The digital world of, is, is going to keep growing and it cannot be stopped. So we either stand, bury our head in the sands and try and figure out what happened or we learn and we learn how to take advantage of the situation and, and, and start to tip the table in, in our favor. So we invite you to join us for tomorrow night. If you can't make it live, don't worry. As I said, it's going to be fully recorded. We're going to chop it up into, into modules. It's going to be taught by a, a dear friend of mine, Sam, who's been in the trenches for the last two years trying to educate people about what's happening with the financial reset and the great reset. He's a very humble guy, uh, and he's here with full of knowledge, full of wisdom, uh, earned in the trenches. It's going to help all of us understand what's happening in the world right now. So you're invited to join us tomorrow night. You can go to danastongregory.com forward slash digital assets, find all about what we're doing. Uh, at least come and get informed. You know, if you, if, you, if you don't agree with what's said, that's fine. But get yourself informed. That's what we need to be doing right now. Anyway, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it. It's important that we all dig beneath the surface. I know there'll be plenty in here to digest and discuss. There'll be plenty of things that we perhaps don't all agree upon. But it's important we have these conversations so we can understand what's going on beneath the surface. Because to me, all is what it's, you know, what, what we're seeing on the surface is not, not what's really happening beneath the bonnet. That's why we need to question everything. You know, right now, the financial world does not make sense. W2F is gone in the UK economy. You tell me, what the heck is going on? Let me, say, let me know in the comments what do you think is happening right now. If there's any resources on this topic you'd like to share, please do share them in the comments. It's really important we get our heads around what's happening in the economy so we can take, take control. All right, more on all of this. I'll see you again soon. Peace and love. Are you stressed by the upcoming financial reset and confused by cryptocurrency digital assets? If so, join us next Tuesday on the Elevate platform as I take a deep dive into the blockchain space, looking at the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll take a look at the practicalities of investing, how important it is to have a strong mindset and empowered stance, and really shine a light on what crypto is and what crypto isn't. It's accessible to anybody, whether they're new to cryptocurrency as a whole or invested but confused about what they're invested in and its potential future. Join us on Tuesday.